of the movie brats podcast i'm carter and joining me as always is jonathan how are you doing jonathan we've got a lot of major releases starting to come out this is a good time to be a a movie goer (laughs) right there are major oscar contenders not just coming out in limited release but are opening wide uh tars and many more theaters triangle of sadness till and open now and next weekend open even wider you have the uh, Banshees of Inishirin yes. and Armageddon Time. So like every week there's multiple films to go see. Yes, very, very exciting time. We're going to start this week with uh, one you just mentioned, Tar, which just opened wide uh, last week, premiered initially at the Venice Film Festival, uh, where Kate Blanchett won the Volpe Cup for Best Actress. Uh, it is directed by Todd Field previously directed in the bedroom and little children his first movie in 16 years i think is when little children yes. came out 2006 uh starring kate blanchett uh nina haas and a lot of other european actors you probably have never heard of um it is about a world famous conductor who undergoes personal trials while preparing for a performance of Mahler's fifth symphony at the uh berlin philharmonic that will serve as a capstone on her distinguished career. It has a Metacritic score of 91 and a Rotten Tomato score of 94. Uh, this is a movie that's sort of, uh, it premiered a little while ago, but I think it got previews before it even came out in Venice or because uh, we were hearing about how this was like one of the most exciting American films to come out in some time. Did it live up to uh, the hype for you? Well, I don't think it's fair to judge a movie. You shouldn't go into it like, oh, this is the best film of the year. But it's just a really strong film. That's all. It, it's sometimes there's a really uh, strong performance that bolsters up a pretty good movie, or there's a really good movie. But like this movie is a really strong movie and a really strong lead performance, and they both complement complement each other so incredibly. I mean, Kate Blanchett is one of our greatest living actresses. And when I say are, I mean, just globally, world, you know, she's not American, but she's like Meryl Streep or uh, Tilda Swinton or Nicole Kidman. It's like, you almost take them for granted. And then she does a movie like this and it's, and it's not just, yes, she learned German and she learned to be a conductor and she did all these technical things. I mean, yes, that's impressive, but it's just such a commanding performance and it's one where you kind of notice it, but that's part of the character because she's so particular and her whole life is so designed and judged. And it's just such a brilliant performance in which her character is kind of giving a performance. Yes. Her whole life. She's she's putting herself out in the world in a specific way and watching her crumble is really fascinating and engrossing. It's yeah, it's like a sort of like two and a half hour slow motion car crash that reveals itself very slowly Um, for like the first hour or so. It's a little hard to sort of see where this is going. And then all of a sudden 
stuff just keeps happening and keeps happening and gets sort of more unexpected. And a lot of a lot of the sort of momentous stuff that you think a lot of movies would focus a lot of screen time on happens off screen in this movie because it's so focused on the experience of Kate Blanchett's character um, that it's it might be a bit of a frustrating watch for some people, but I found it like incredibly enthralling and it may not sound like a movie about a conductor sort of fretting over performing a symphony by Gustav Mahler would be a very entertaining movie, especially one that's two hours and 40 minutes long. But uh, this is one of the more sort of riveted experiences I've had at a movie theater, maybe since like the father or something like that. Um, I thought it was just incredible. Well, uh, the director Todd Field has talked about how almost every single shot in the movie or at least every scene it has tar lydia tar Kate blanchett's character in the frame and the film is from her point of view and you don't ever really know what really happened yes and it, now it's all let's make clear that it's all fictional this is not a biopic <laughs> there are some influences by real life people that you could draw comparisons to but it's a completely fictional character and so when you say, oh, what really happened? Whose side of the story should we believe? I mean, it's all made up, yeah. but it's really from her point of view, we're in her head. And one of the things that's really fascinating is watching someone deteriorate and slowly fall apart. Someone who's so controlled and pulled together, watching her over this, you know, nearly two hours and 40 minutes get you know she's she's so in control of her life but watching it slowly slip away it's almost like we've been saying this is such a strong year for horror films and <laughs> two of the movies we're reviewing today i think you could argue are almost horror film adjacent this movie is like a you know maybe not a horror film but it's like a psychological it's like thriller. a personal nightmare <laughs> right there's the, uh one of the things is she has this I don't I've heard the director and Kate Blanchett talk about it in interviews. I don't know the actual term, but they have this oversensitivity to sound or mm -hmm. people moving like someone tapping their leg. And there's these moments where this tiniest thing sets her off, like the noise at the edge of her car or she thinks you know, she sees a student, you know, moving his leg up and down uh -huh. and it can take because her world is so controlled and almost hermetically sealed that the tiniest things that go off are like really upsetting and it just makes you as an audience member feel how sensitive she is to the world and when it comes crumbling down it's even though it may seem on paper minor it's really engrossing watching her go through that because of how her character is Yes, I mean, in, in the sort of rooting it in reality that it does, the opening scene is sort of like a book launch questionnaire. And I think that the interviewer is a New Yorker writer who's a real person. Right. Uh, I'm not so like plugged into the New York <laughs> literary world that I know this person's name, but I thought that was a really good way to root it in reality. And this is one. It's and it's been... a great way to do an exposition dump. Yes. It works <laughs> in the film. Yes, they actually play that really interestingly because you see how people react to this sort of recitation of her accomplishments and how she's sort of behaving while people are saying it about her. But uh, um, And I want to point out, this is a movie, even though it's quite long, it and we've both only seen it once, right? You've yes. seen it. Uh, it would reward 
uh, a second oh, or, or repeat of doing because there's all these little moments in the movie even after watching it once you go back and you think oh you see her assistant mouthing the biography of tar when she's on stage and you get the sense that there's so much of her life and her public presence that's rehearsed yes and and you even see this isn't really a spoiler but you see her go back to her childhood home and she sees her brother and he says oh hello lydia uh, he said well he, well, he, he says calls linda her by, right that's the thing he calls <laughs> her a different name and so even her own name is an invention you know, there, right there's creation all this, projecting yeah. what she thinks a great composer should be basically right and like goes and down to it, her photo shoot for like the the album cover is like modeled on a different composer and she gave this speech earlier about to like an aspiring composer that like you can't be a robot you have to do your own thing yet she's like constantly sort of behaving as as to what she thinks the ideal of a composer should be uh right it's a very interesting character study of an invented character. <laughs> right. And I think that uh, there's, I mean, I actually, when I first heard about this movie, I didn't know if it was a real person or not. And when I actually saw the movie, when I was hearing some of the press, I you know, realized that this is a fictional character, mm-hmm. but there's almost a, it, it, it's like a biopic about a person that isn't real. Yeah. There's this, <laughs> there's such an authenticity. It's well, one of the things I like, like a movie like Moneyball, where I really don't know anything baseball about and statistics, of, right? Yeah. But but the movie is so intelligent that even if you don't actually understand all the specifics or every word, you it feels so authentic that you get the gist and you get the uh intelligence of the characters. It feels yes. so lived sort of in. what their positions mean. Or like we can understand the dynamic between the first cello and the first violin and the symphony orchestra and sort of what people would assume your intention is when you don't give a position to that first cello or violin or whatever. Uh, right. And <laughs> I think that there's there's also like we were saying, it really is almost like a horror thriller in some aspects because yeah. the very first thing we see in the film is tar being filmed on an airplane but we don't know at first we don't know for quite a while who's filming it oh that's that's bizarre this is something that was very unusual is i almost thought it was like a mistake by the theaters that they like played what usually is like an end credits to start the movie yeah it's like five minutes or <laughs> yeah so, it's like surely credits. this is like the end of the movie and they actually like accidentally put it at the end but no, and it like went backwards. It was so unusual. I was watching it and I was like, is this like a joke? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's uh, I've seen a few films that have done that. Uh, Gaspar Noe's climax from a few years ago starts with the entire end credits. But uh, I think that the film plays with structure in a really yes. interesting way where, you know, it's it's rare to have a film where you start with cell phone footage very briefly. You don't mm-hmm. know who is doing the filming. Then you have five minutes of end credits. Then you have this like 15 minute interview. Like New York real person. Yeah. <laughs> right. And um, what's interesting too is because we don't want to give too much away, but there is um, things that come back to haunt Tar. Yes. Uh, from her past and what she, how she currently acts. 
And what's interesting is that there's the internet, there's emails, there's cell phone videos mm -hmm. that are used against her. And some of it is legitimately edited up. Um, but what's fascinating is there's this incredible scene early in the movie. It's fairly soon after the interview that opens the film early on that there's like this 10 minute take of her teaching at Juilliard. Yes. And it's, and it's really interesting because you see that in this really lengthy tracking shot that goes around and around and around her. And then you see later in the film that parts of that scene cut up and selectively edited. Right. But because it's shot originally in this one long take, we know as an audience what she really says. And one could argue she says things that are, um you know, definitely a little yeah crossing the line in regards right. to most mostly it's her being kind of sticking by her guns and perhaps you could say the student that she's debating with is being, being a, little, a little too rigid right but uh they certainly edit up the video and yeah it's 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 an interesting with the film itself how it's so kind of cool and detached and has this kind of eerie quality to eerie quality to it but it's also it's so engrossing and human too like tara is such a complex character there's yeah. i heard the director talk in an interview when they were editing the movie uh that at the end of each day they would ask you know how do we feel about lydia today and <laughs> it's like it's not just like she's this brilliant perfect person and she's not uh, a horrible manipulative monster she's a bunch of things yes and the film what? doesn't tell you what the quote-unquote truth is you're watching this even though it's quite a long film you're watching a fairly uh small amount of her life in the yeah, present it's like weeks right and it's really just uh it, it makes you think about how we judge and think about people that seem you know, it's like there are people that are so impressive in the world and yet they're human and it makes you question, you know, how do we judge these? Are we judging them differently because they're brilliant at their job or do we overjudge some people because, you know, it, it just makes you think about the way you judge other human beings, especially when they have such power. Well, and also the sort of relation between a creator and the artistic product that they create and how much one should be judged by the other or vice versa because the sort of main topic of that uh classroom discussion is about um bach and the student thinks that bach's whole sort of you know accomplishment should be thrown out because he was a philanderer and a misogynist all this sort of stuff and you know she thinks you, sh you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. but then she proves to be a sort of problematic figure herself and so she sort of in real time uh, acts out this sort of scenario that represents the idea of separating art from the artist and, and stuff like that. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting movie and very um, much a movie of our time. Uh, I would not be surprised if Kate Blanchett were to win Best Actress. She won for Blue Jasmine a few years ago, right? Right. Uh, and then, uh, the did she win for something else? The, the Aviator? AV. Right. Supporting? So, right. So, okay, uh, wow. She should I, be I, in she, hollow territory if she wins three. Right. I like think Francis that, McDormand, Meryl Streep. Yeah. yeah. Catherine Hepburn's won four. Uh, but I think that I can't imagine she's not going to be nominated. She has to be one of the five. It would be a yeah. real upset if she wasn't. I I think Todd Field is a very good chance of being nominated. You For know, director. Gonna, yeah, it's gonna get 
you know, a number of technical or I can imagine sound being a part of you know <laughs> yeah. cinematography. The sound design of this movie was incredible. The whole sort of sensitive noises, but also capturing the musical performances and like really making the some of the cellos and violins and stuff like that just feel like really vibrate in the theater. I thought it was really fascinating how they and sometimes they shoot people shoot stuff in a way that you really haven't seen done before. I thought whiplash was really interesting shooting the sort of like big band how they would like sweep in and do close-ups and stuff like that. And the way they just shot the the symphony in this, I found very like it, it just showed like performing classical music in a way that was much more interesting than uh, you would expect just sort of hearing that a movie is about classical music. Right. And even though these people are, you know, very rich and high society and it's a very, refi- very refined people, you know, classical music, there is a quality to the movie, especially like the first hour where it's almost like quotidian, like you're just seeing how she goes about her job and her life. And then it starts to unravel, but it sets up, you know, this is how someone conducts an orchestra. This is how someone does. (laughs) The sort of notes they make. (laughs) Right. And I always find it interesting watching people go about their lives and their jobs and seeing like how they actually do their job. Yeah, at at the highest level. That's why it is similar to Moneyball because that's, you know, like the major league GM. What do they do? This is like, someone who runs one of the world's greatest philharmonics. How do they, how did they get that job and how do they do it? Basically. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that this is a movie that won't be for everyone, but like, if no. you're like not a complete Neanderthal, like you should be entertained <laughs> by it. Cause it's such a strong performance and it's, you know, it's gripping, I think very yes. much gripping. Yeah. And the way they reveal information and it keeps, it's very suspenseful. Um, and we, we don't want to give it away, but it's a very good ending that I you yes, can kind of interpret. a big big payoff uh, at the final shot. Yeah, it's, um, a, after it's, s- it's kind of it's kind of surprising, given how like refined the movie is. Like yes, uh, where she winds up. Um, um, I saw one reviewer said uh, I didn't want it to end, and uh, that's sort of how I felt when it was over. Right. Um, <laughs> can move on uh, to the next movie. Also, uh, well. A real biopic, but in some ways a fictionalized biopic as well. Um, it is Blonde, directed by Andrew Dominic, uh, who previously directed The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, and also Killing Me Softly. Them, and I think he right? did uh, them? Killing, I was Killing Them Softly, yeah. And then and an it's Australian another director, movie, I think. Well, it, he's done a few documentaries, but like uh, Todd Field, he hasn't done a narrative film. In a long and, time. I mean, it's been, I think, Killing Them Softly was the last one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, starring Anna de Armas, Adrian Brody, Bobby Cannavale, and Xavier Samuel. Uh, it is a fictionalized depiction of the life of Marilyn Monroe from basically her childhood up to her death. It premiered September 8th at the Venice Film Festival, uh, was released wide September 28th on Netflix. A Metacritic score of 50 and Iran made a score of 42. I think in some ways similar to Don't Worry Darling, this movie's probably more well known for the press coverage of it than the actual movie itself. Um, this was a movie we first heard about. Oh, it feels like a long time ago that this was going to be buried by Netflix, that it was NC-17 and was just sort of too disturbing to see the light of day. And... I think we both agree that the final product is not quite as transgressive as the press built it up to be. 
And I think we should say that it's based on a novel. A book, yes, by Joyce Carol Oates, yes. which has been out for over 20 years. Yes. And uh, it, Andrew Dominic has been trying to make it for quite a while. Yeah. And I there was think a situation that... where a lot of the actresses were like cast, but then they got too old because it was in production for such a long time and stuff like that. Right. Because Marilyn Monroe died at like 36 or something. She was, you know, quite young when she passed away. I, yeah, I, I really like this movie. And I think that it's a movie I respect someone watching the movie and not liking it. And I understand some of the criticism that it, further dehumanizes and degrades Marilyn Monroe but I argue that it is an exploration of her suffering and her exploitation and not further doing that to her and I think that like Tar one of the things that just makes this movie as strong as it is uh, Ana de Armas, I think, is just yes amazing, and well, it's I, fully yeah, committed. Yeah, and yes, there's a little. You can every so often hear a, a, kind a little of bit a, of an accent, but but it doesn't <laughs> matter. It's like Anthony Hopkins uh, and Nixon. He doesn't look like Nixon, but <laughs> it's remarkable how much. I mean, it's a real gift uh, that Andrew Dominic had a real vision that I don't think hardly anyone else would have thought this Cuban, you know, dark haired actress. Could be play Marilyn Marilyn Monroe, but, but there are shots, especially in the recreation. Oh my God, where she looks exactly like her. Like some like at Hot, where she's singing on stage. I really thought that was real footage. Archival footage, yeah. <laughs> I know. And or the, the seven-year age scene where she does the like uh, subway grate where her skirt flies up. Uh, I mean, that was like, that's such a famous moment from a movie that like barely anybody's ever seen. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't realize they don't even know what film that's from. It's no. the same director of some like at hot, yeah, which Billy is much Wilder. more famous, uh, came out earlier. But I think that the movie, okay, there's Ana de Armas's performance, which I think is incredible. She, I think, you know, we haven't seen everything, but like I absolutely would have her as one of my five nominees for best actress, but I don't think I she doubt will it will. The movie's um, just, I think, hated so the, basically by this point. And I think that it's, uh, a technical marvel i mean yes. the way it recreates time specific spaces i mean it looks like not only you know recreating some of the films but it looks like is this like archival footage from new york city in the 50s or is this <laughs> yeah. recreated and uh, the way he plays with film formats and black yeah, and changing and aspect ratios and color and going into slow motion and stuff like that it's a very stylistic, um, expressionistic kind of movie. It is very much not a traditional biopic or like a Wikipedia entry sort of biopic or a paint-by-number sort of thing. And pe- I've heard some people criticize this, like, why does it go from widescreen to full screen and black, white to color? But it almost, to me, it captures how varied her life is. She would yeah. make these, you know, black and white serious dramas and then she'd make these technicolor musicals and she would be doing a photo shoot in this format and it shows how kind of how her life there were so many facets to her she wasn't just this colorful pinup bubbly right there were all these different shades to her in different ways yeah and moments of real suffering and sadness and i mean i i think in a lot of ways it's 
it it's not like a hundred percent this is like what the movie's doing, but it in a lot of ways it represents her psychological states because there's a little bit of sort of mania about at least the version of her in this movie where she like goes from you know peaks to valleys just like all the time and is so concerned with this sort of public facing trying to be everyone's idea of a perfect woman that it like tears her apart on the inside. Um, and, and there's been a lot of people who were saying that this is like a degrading movie or it doesn't respect the legacy of Marilyn Monroe or that it should have, I guess, treated her with a little more reverence. Um, I've also heard people say that it doesn't show enough of her accomplishments. Yeah. And or and her intellect or her business acumen. Um, but it's you see a little bit of that i know but i think and and i've heard some of the criticism i've read like i said i can respect someone being against this but there's there's this thing of like why does she have to be topless for almost the entire second half of the movie and well that's not true for one thing (laughs) she is topless in a number of scenes but it's like I I feel like there's some people that have this idea that even if it's not Meryl Monroe, like why would you make a movie showing a woman suffering so much, especially a man writing and directing yes. this? And I feel like, well, you know, you can be against this specific film and the way this specific film and filmmaker depicts the woman suffering, but I don't think there's a problem really depicting anything in art. It's how you do it. Yeah, And I think the film does, I mean, the movie does, it doesn't exploit Meryl Monroe. Oh, and it doesn't explain it either. It just prods it. It explores the exploit, it explores the exploitation. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Um, And it's, it's, you know, it's a different approach to the biopic. It's, it's more sort of expressionistic it's it's not and really it is, straightforward and it is lurid i do think the movie yes. is kind of lurid and it is being not over the top necessarily but it's in your face and yeah un, it's uh, trying to get a reaction i mean right. it's it's trying to put you in an uncomfortable position and uh i don't know I, I i can't remember who said the quote i think it might have been I think Film Forum is doing this thing on Isabel Huppert, and I keep saying this quote about her saying, films shouldn't make you feel good. And, you Mm -hmm. know, that's definitely what, like, Blonde is. It's not a movie that makes you feel good, but, you know, people do suffer, and it seems like, from what I know of Marilyn Monroe, she experienced some real suffering and and sadness, and to sort of deny that would be to deny her experience, and um, you know, it's not a very happy movie, but I don't think she lived a very happy life. Um, so I think that this was a very interesting exploration of what fame can do to someone and what growing up in a broken home without any sort of real identity can do to someone. And, and you know, I, I you read a Paul Schrader quote to me before we started recording about how in some ways this movie is weighed down by being about Marilyn Monroe. And if it had sort of freed itself from how big her reputation and how important of a cultural figure she is that maybe it would have been given more of a fair shot and also maybe they could have done more. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that she's like Elvis, a big cultural figure who I don't really know much about. So getting any sort of exploration into their subjective experience, I, I find interesting because behind these massive cultural icons of the 20th century, there existed real people. Um, and, you know, I think that we can sort of separate think, the real person from 
what they represent sometimes. I think that you could almost look at the film as being taking this real woman. And even Marilyn Monroe wasn't really a real person. It was Norma yeah, Jean. Exactly. And, and I think that you could argue the film almost is taking this real person, but using it as an avatar to talk about all these different issues. Yeah. And that perhaps Schrader's arguing that, you know, the perhaps the film could have been improved or, or, or you know, it wouldn't have been so controversial if it wasn't this real woman but i think that the film and i also liked mark kermode's review he argued that like we were saying with tar uh mark kermode was arguing that blonde is almost more of a horror movie than a biopic it's this yeah. you know showing well she does wh- so much bad stuff happens to her um <laughs> uh, it's sometimes it's a little tough to watch just how like the tragedy of it is on a scale that most movies don't depict Yeah, and I think that you come away with this from this movie with such such sympathy for Marilyn Monroe yeah. and what she went through, and it's also you think about what could have, what more could have been if she had lived longer, if she had gotten the help, mental help, if she had gotten the you know drug, you know, if she hadn't been on the drugs. I mean, you see how much. Yeah. You know, and, you know, you question, you know, there's there's plenty of stuff in this film that is completely fictionalized. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like there's I don't want to give too much away, but there's a whole thing where she's basically in a thruple with Charlie Chaplin, Jr. and Edward G. Robinson, Jr. Jr. And like that's a big part of the first hour of the movie. Right. And like one of them passes away towards the end of the movie and like he died. He died after. Yeah. Right. And so, it, but well, I, the way the, the movie presents that is almost as like it's the inciting incident that makes her commit suicide is this sort of final insult that Charlie Chaplin Jr. delivers, um, which, you know, is really playing with fact and fiction. But I, I do think that that they've been good at um, really emphasizing the fictional nature of uh, the depiction. Uh I mean, there are some really disturbing images and scenes in the movie where oh, even yeah. I was a little bit wondering, is this too much? Where it's almost, there's a part where she gets out of bed where she has like menstrual blood all over herself and it's shot with like night vision and it's just like, ugh. And you're wondering like, it, it, is this really necessary? But I don't know. I, I overall, I really- It never felt like too much for me. And yeah. well, I'm or, someone who can or, be pretty sensitive. Too- or it is too much, but you you can justify it. it's it's the be- being too much is what it's trying to do. Well, it was it was on the borderline. It was it was, and yeah, it's a confrontational movie. Um, but it's I didn't find it like uh, unredeemable, indulgent or unredeemable. Yeah, I right. didn't think that it it like took glee in her suffering or anything like that. I thought it I, I thought it treated her very humanly at the end of the day and. Um, ultimately, I didn't think it was as as shocking or as transgressive as the sort of media hype around it uh, made me expect it to be. And I think that it's hard to, I mean, even people that really despise the movie, I, I don't think anyone disagrees that Ana de Armas is incredible. Is, yeah. And that the movie is a real technical marvel. Yeah. I mean, some of the the recreations of the iconic moments and in the movies and stuff like that, it's like it's like it's like brechtian and how it shows like tableau and 
just these images that are like iconic and just how they recreate them and present them in this different sort of way it it was fascinating to watch i was never bored watching this movie um, and, um, like tar it was quite long yeah it, it, it's um it's two hours and 46 minutes did you see it on netflix or at home i i saw it uh at, on netflix i didn't end up seeing it in the theater I saw one critic say that they find it hard to imagine someone sitting and watching the whole movie and finishing it. <laughs> I'm the it, one person. <laughs> well, I mean, but the average viewer, because it's so intense and long and upsetting. But I do think, I mean, we I, we say this about every single movie we've ever reviewed, but we, you know, it's not playing like in any theater still. No. It's a movie that you really should at least watch in one sitting. Yes. Because it, it's like, it's, this is a really weird comparison, but there's that movie, Jean Dielman, the three hour and 21 minute Chantal Ackerman movie, watching a woman do house chores over three days. And it's like, you're sitting watching a movie and like, if you know, like you're watching this woman do house chores for three days and you feel kind of exhausted by the end. And it's like, you can watch Blonde and be kind of emotionally drained by the end of it. But you're watching a movie and like, you should yeah. give it, the chance like the movie is purposeful in what it's doing and like you you need to watch it in one sitting it may be tough like even uh, Joyce Carol Oates said she had to take a break and come back to watching it was so and she wrote the novel yes. but I re- I always recommend watching a movie in one well, sitting. well in a lot of ways this is kind of like the worst movie to have a Netflix release because it's very challenging and it is very long and you can imagine people starting it and turning it off after half an hour and never watching another minute of it and uh, but but again they're the only one that would make this movie yeah oh yeah movies. because oh my gosh yeah i mean without streaming this movie wouldn't exist <laughs> but it, in a lot of ways it's just the worst streaming movie it's like the opposite of what netflix the whole purpose of netflix movies is to like keep people watching red notice <laughs> exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and it's the, but it's yeah it's the weird paradox of that like not only because of the subject matter i mean i'm sure the you know the budget wasn't huge for this movie but there was all this artistry uh and technical you know they had you know it took some money to make this yeah oh yeah (laughs) i don't know but i'm glad it was released i think it's a very interesting biopic i think the more varied biopics become i think it's better for the genre because far too often it's just a wikipedia entry brought to life and treats the the subject with no sort of three-dimensionality so i thought blonde was a a step in the right direction uh as far as that goes right yeah i very much recommend it for people that know what they're getting into knowing it's a heavy (laughs) movie yes um well i think we are going to take a short break and come back with another movie about a 20th century icon so we will be back in just a minute and now uh, our third movie is a documentary um it is moon age daydream directed by brett morgan uh who has previously directed uh the music biopics kurt cobain montage of heck and crossfire hurricane about the early years of the rolling stones uh this <laughs> the star of this movie is obviously david bowie uh, it is a stylized documentary about uh, David Bowie and his ever-shifting sounds and personalities, basically from the early 70s up until uh, basically his death. 
Uh, it premiered May 23rd at the Cannes Film Festival, so the first uh, movie of the three we reviewed to be released, uh, but was not released wide in the U.S. until September 16th. A Metacritic score of 83 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 92. Um, it seems like every three months we get a music documentary about a different band or performer. Uh, what distinguished this one from uh, Sparks or Velvet Underground or any other music documentary we've gotten over the last few years? Well, I think that uh, I should say, first off, I am not a David Bowie expert. And after having seen the film, I'm still not a David Bowie expert <laughs> because this is to, I think, the film's benefit, not a cradle to grave. You're going to learn a ton of factual information, talking heads, inter not the band talking heads, but talking head interviews. <laughs> um, it is really a film that tries to not necessarily replicate but honor the artistic spirit of the artist that the film is about. And mm -hmm. it's this two hour plus almost collage, this burst of energy and music and multimedia influences that converge in this big screen extravaganza to give you a suggestion, a a uh, portrait, a portal, if you will, into the life and art of David Bowie. And I think one of the things that the film does differently than other music documentaries is that even though it is uh, the first documentary pretty much that was given the stamp of approval by the Bowie estate, I mean, they gave them all this access to footage and music mm -hmm but it really does feel like a it, it's not an informational documentary no. uh, it's not one and i think that uh, one interesting quote i heard from the director uh, brett morgan was saying that you know whenever someone makes a biography that it's also an autobiography of the person making it it's like brett morgan's David Bowie documentary yeah. is not going to be the same as a Ken Burns or an Errol Morris or a Scorsese or whoever makes the film. Yeah. It's it, going to be through the lens of them. What they I consider think, to be important or worth screen time, basically. Right. And I think that even, like I said, I, I do not, I don't know music anywhere near as much as I know uh, film. Uh -huh. But uh, I, I... Well, Bowie sort of straddles both spheres in an, in an interesting way. And they show a few clips from movies he appeared in most notably the man who fell to earth and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, and he, he acted in, you know, I think both of our favorite Christopher Nolan movie, the prestige. Um, I don't think they show one frame of him in twin peaks fire walk with me, which I was kind of disappointed. No, uh, I don't think they did. He's barely in that movie and he was not happy with his accent, but yeah, I, um, I, I saw this movie in a theater, which like we say every- I did as well, seen. actually. <laughs> uh, but it's one you wanted to see loud on a yes. big screen. The sound and design of this movie was fantastic. I heard in interviews, I've listened to a few with the director and it came about because a number of years ago, he had this idea of making these like 40 hour long, 40 minute hour long uh, movie documentaries about different music groups to play- at uh, IMAX museums, uh, 
Oh, like the full the 360 degree ones. They're like the ones that show the nature documentaries and scientific yeah. ones in the day. And then at night, they would have like a 45 minute one on the Beatles and a 45 minute one on David Bowie. Oh, that'd and, be cool. And that's how the kind of the kernel of the idea got started. But then he had a massive heart attack and almost died, the director. Oh, wow. And he spent years and years working on this movie and through the pandemic. And it's uh, a very personal movie for Brett Morgan, I think. He has a really interesting career. He's been making documentaries for over 20 years. Uh, one of his most well-known early movies is The Kid Stays in the Picture yeah. about Robert Evans. He's done one about Jane Goodall that I saw called Jane. That was very good. That was his most recent, I think, right? Um, it's it like 2016 or something like that. I'm not sure if it's most recent, but it's I, I did see that one in the theater. I saw him at, in person at a screening of his uh, Kurt Cobain documentary, which I also thought was very good and inventive. But um, I think that you don't have to be a David Bowie fan or even, you know, a fanatic to enjoy the movie, but you should go into it expecting a, a lot of Bowie. Of, well, no, well, but not concrete, factual. It's not like a Ken no. Burns I was just thinking, like, uh, you know, most documentaries involve a wide variety of voices talking about a subject. Do we hear anyone else's voice besides Bowie in this movie? I can't I mean, remember if we do. I think pretty much only other people talking to him. Yeah, uh, but we don't. <laughs> it's pretty much from him. And there's all this fascinating footage of. Um, I mean, besides obviously being a singer songwriter uh, and we mentioned an actor, he did all this different art pieces, you know, mm -hmm. he would do these weird performance art video, you know, with video early video work and or portraits of random Germans. Right. And, and it almost you wonder sometimes like, what was this created for? It's like it, it it's such a, like haunting images that work well in the movie. It's but it's like it wasn't just created for this, though. I mean, you yeah. wonder sometimes, like, was he just fooling around with stuff? And I probably some of it was projected at his concerts or were part yeah. of, you know, art pieces at museums, I guess. But uh, yeah, it just I, seems like such a creative force. I mean, that's what I think the documentary gets across more than anything is it's not just music. It's like all the time, he, everything he was doing was just like art and creating right. uh, in and multiple mediums and, and, you know, different playing with time in different ways. And it's, you know, it's really about him as like the ultimate sort of artist of the 20th century. And, um, and not an artist who's like just for, you know, artists. He's like, he had mass appeal. And a lot of the beginning of the movie had, uh, where it was sort of outside of his perspective was people going to David Bowie concerts and talking about why they're seeing Bowie and, you know, <laughs> you know, in really short snippets. It's not like these people are going into like lengthy exposés on why they like David Bowie. It's just like, Oh, he's cool or he's sexy or something like that. Um, so at the beginning you get a little more of his cultural impact. And then as it goes on, it, it gets, I think a little more sort of internalized and just sort of about his journey as an artist. Um, but I mean, I mean, I'm a Bowie fan and I've, I, I don't think there'd been, like you said, this is the first sort of Bowie approved documentary as a Bowie fan. I thought this was a, a really worthwhile experience and uh, I think enhanced my fandom. I mean, on my drive home, I listened to David Bowie music and uh, that's sort of what I want from a music documentary. It makes you sort of 
rediscover why you like this artist in the first place. Did you did you listen to any more David Bowie after you uh, watched this movie? No, I listened to some of his songs uh, on the way home. I saw it in Atlanta. I saw it the same day as Blonde. Uh, oh, but wow. I think that an interesting comparison, and it does it very differently, though, with Tar is that David Bowie was kind of constantly creating his image in the yes. public and transforming. And, you know, with Tar, you know, it's like she's a fictional character and she's perhaps hiding her true self. And it's interesting how the documentary moon age daydream it shows how he had all these different personas and musical genres and eras that he played in and played with and he played with gender and costumes and his presentation and it it leaves a certain enigma about him but it's almost like in a weird way i've heard people talk about there's certain actors like peter sellers where he created all these characters to express himself and maybe it's hard to pin down was there a real peter sellers a real david bowie but he was so creative in his output that even though him as a person is kind of elusive you learn so much about him through his art at least yeah and through how he shapes himself in the public eye and how he changes costume and how he looks and how he sounds, because that's a big part of it with his Berlin trilogy. It's very avant-garde and it's sort of like a rite of spring type experimental experimental music. And then when he does Let's Dance, it's like the ultimate pop album. And he's like, I want to be a big pop idol again. And uh, he's a very interesting musician in that he's for sort of the hipsters and also for someone who listens to like a classic rock radio station. Um, he sort of appeals to all sorts of audiences uh, and he's a very elusive sort of figure and he's a real chameleon he changes a lot with the times that he lived in uh, but I, th- I thought that this movie really reflected the creative energy of David Bowie and and did a good job of uh, trying to put the person watching it into the sort of state of mind of a Bowie creation uh, especially the beginning. It started with like really trippy sort of imagery and a lot of Bowie music and just puts you in a frame of mind to be ready to see a pretty different sort of documentary. Uh, I, I thought it think, was really good. I mean, in, in, coming from the era he started in, I mean, I, it's hard not to think of like 2001, 2001 Space, the, <laughs> yeah. the Stargate sequence. Uh, yes. And, and that was hard. a really influential movie, especially in the way it used music. Um, like in the beginning with uh, the Blue Danube waltz and stuff like that. So um, I, and I think it's hard to escape the influence of 2001 and uh, stuff from the late 60s, really. And his first big hit was uh, Major Tom, right? Which is sort of playing on sort of psychedelia and science fiction and stuff like that. Uh, and there's this, this quality where he was one of those artists where when he died, it was so shocking, not because yeah, no one knew. Went- Right. And it's almost like you could read this metaphor about there's all this space, uh, you know, the title of the, you know, the song in the movie that it's almost like he was this bright shining star. It didn't last forever, but mm-hmm. what an impact he made. Um, yeah. So I, I think the film is perhaps a little long, a little bit. Yeah. Repetitive. Yeah. yeah. It goes it on is. like two hours and 15, 20 minutes. Uh, but, <laughs> no, there uh, was a period about two hours into it. I was like, how much longer is this going to be? <laughs> right. But it's and it's one that it's 
you it's an experiential documentary it's one where you want to crank up the sound and watch it with the lights off it's not one where you're gonna sit and watch it you know you know studying it like you're (laughs) watching something on pbs it's a it's really a cinematic experience yes it's not really diegetic the purpose of it really isn't to convey information uh it's much more expressionistic uh, but and better I think, for it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that represents its subject better than what a straightforward, information-heavy, sort of expositional uh, documentary would be. Um, so in that way, I thought it was very fitting and, and honored the subject very well. Uh, three really long movies. And a sort of cumulative runtime, this has to be the longest podcast we've done in terms of the three movies right they're all at least two hours and 15 minutes yeah um all three about the art and artists and uh, the purpose of uh and the toll that being a creator can take on a person um so thematically i think aligned in some way would definitely recommend all three of them uh probably for my money tar is the outstanding movie of the ones we've reviewed in this episode would you agree with that i would say that uh i tar would be the one i would give the highest rating to the but I, really, I, I liked <laughs> i liked blonde more than i think a lot of people did though well most people hate it <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> so i mean I it's think. it's yeah it has like right at a 50 on metacritic i mean it's so divisive yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yeah, it's one of those i don't really understand it it seems like blonde is one of those works of art that reveals a lot about the consumer and how they react to it. Um, which I think is a sign that it's good art that in a lot of ways, a person's reaction to it is about the baggage as an audience member you bring to it. To um, connect to a movie we were talking about. I remember Steven Soderbergh once was saying, you know, what would 2001 a space odyssey had on rotten tomatoes if it had been around back in 1968. <laughs> Probably, yeah, like a 50. Some right. people would be like, what is this? Right. So, <laughs> stoner uh, shit. Right. So, I, 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 even though I can respect someone having real strong reaction and issues with Blonde, I think it's a movie that if you're serious about film, like you really should see it at least. Oh, definitely. Um, definitely. And it's on Netflix. So, it's widely available. I mean, the one thing about these streaming platforms is it, gives a movie a much bigger audience than potentially it, it might have because in a traditional release, nobody would see this movie. Right. Uh, <laughs> like we, I was saying uh, to someone before, uh, like Charlie Kaufman's I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah. Even if you include the, all the movies he just wrote and didn't direct probably like within a month, it had been viewed by more people. <laughs> yeah. Then all of his other movies combined. Probably. You know, just because of the distribution uh, of Netflix, I mean, it's completely transformed distribution around the world. And, you know, basically at a push of a button, a movie can be in nearly every country in the world except like North Korea. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I would be I would be very interested in seeing the statistics about how many people who start it finish it and where people stop watching. I think that would be fascinating to to look at. So if if right. Netflix the famously they never release their viewing numbers and or, any, or anything like that to the public. They just come out with statements like Bird Box, the most viewed movie in American history, uh, and stuff like that, which is generally self-serving. But 
I'd be very curious to see <laughs> the stats about that one. Um, and I wonder if because Netflix is Netflix, whether they could push to get Ana de Armas. I think they will the best campaign actress for nomination. her. But I don't know that. I think the movie is so... De- I mean, there have been times where a movie's been very divisive, but like everyone kind of agrees, but the performance is so good. But yeah. this one's so controversial. Like three billboards. A lot of people hated that, but they were like, well, Francis... Well, that got much great. higher reviews. But, well, it did, but, it but still there were some people who really didn't like it. And they also, got- uh, what's the one? The one best picture? Green Book. And Mahershal, everyone, though, was like, Mahershal Ali is fantastic. Right. Um, so that can happen. And... Uh, in some ways, I think people might be a little uh, more willing to prop up in a day or must because like, um, it will be really depressing to me if Don't Look Up got nominated for Best Picture, but Ana de Armas didn't get nominated for Best for Actress. Yeah. yeah, Netflix films that are really long, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and some should... people think maybe shouldn't exist. <laughs> right. But Bond uh, is a much greater work of art to me. As far yes, me as well. And I was much more entertained, shockingly, as that may sound, from a, a comedy starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, I was much more ready to turn that off than I was Blonde. Uh, but those are three pretty serious movies, pretty long movies. But I think all three definitely worth watching. Um, and that's that's I think that's all we have for this episode, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three movies worth seeing. We're in Austin. I wonder if Moon Age Daydream will get nominated for best for documentary. documentary. I yeah, I don't know what the, a lot of the other big documentaries are. I mean, that usually comes as a surprise to me because you're a big consumer of documentaries. I'm not. So, <laughs> well, it, it it could be one of those weird things where like it gets nominated for a sound Oscar, but not documentary. Uh, documentary. <laughs> Hoop Dreams is not nominated for best documentary, but for best editing. You know, yeah. there have been weird examples, but. I don't know. Well, there's always a short list, so uh, I certainly think it would be in the discussion. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, so we'll see. But yeah, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll be back with you pretty soon with uh, some more movies in this very exciting time for movie fans to <laughs> be seeing movies in theaters. It's a very exciting time. All right, thank you for listening, and uh, we will be back with you guys next time. Thank you.